and welcome to Legal Voices, Meritas' official podcast channel where we bring to you industry-related legal updates. In our latest series, Mario Torres, lawyer at Meritas member firm Brazo Seller and co-chair of Meritas' Latin America and Caribbean Cannabis Law Group, interviews lawyers from around the world to learn more about how each jurisdiction is handling cannabis and marijuana legalization. Before I hand it off to Mario, and for those of you who are new to Meritas, Meritas is an established global alliance of closely connected yet independent law firms that each offer a full range of high-quality specialized legal services. We were built upon a rigorous system for monitoring and enhancing the quality of our member firms and have been connecting clients with carefully qualified business legal expertise in over 250 markets around the world since 1990. Hi everyone. Welcome to episode number nine in the Meritas Cannabis World Tour. Today we are returning with our friend Alex Malashev from Carter, Ledyard, and Milburn in New York City. Today we will be speaking with Alex about legalization in the state of New York. As we know, Alex is an expert in this industry and has a robust cannabis, hemp, and CBD practice. Welcome back, Alex. So I'm here today again with Alex Malashev from Carter, Ledyard, and Milburn in New York City. Alex, welcome back. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah. So as uh, we will recall, Alex, you know, a resident, let's call him a national expert, but he also uh, practices in, in New York and, and New York is making or taking some, some pretty big steps as of late. Um, and so we're here to talk about those. So let, let's jump right in, Alex. Where, where are things at in New York today? They're at a very exciting point. So for about six years, New York had a fairly restrictive medical cannabis law and restrictive in a number of licenses, not so much in who could become a patient. So we had initially five and then it expanded to 10 vertically integrated uh, registered organizations, which are cannabis uh, dispensaries that uh, go all the way up the line to cultivation. You can probably guess who the, some of them are, uh, Columbia Care, MedMen, you know, very expensive licenses, uh, application of, you know, $200,000 uh, for the application fee and really no new entrance for years. Uh, in 2021, a couple of months ago, actually, uh, we've adopted the Marijuana Taxation Act and, uh, and Legalization Act. Uh, the MRTA allows for two regimes. One is for the medical. So that's pretty much grandfathering in the 10 existing ROs. And then a new Article 4, which deals with adult use, recreational, 21 plus, take your pick, law, which is going to be very exciting because it, it actually follows a very decentralized model of licenses for everything from cultivation to manufacturing, distribution, delivery, retail sale, something that's new for New York, on-site consumption, so think cannabis bars minus the alcohol and also smaller you know micro licenses uh, that allows you some vertical integration but for those not familiar the alcohol three-tier model is uh, sort of a vestige of our uh, last attempted prohibition which was alcohol prohibition that gave uh, rise to some very nasty vertically integrated businesses so states that follow the three-tier model decentralize that so you're not allowed to have cross ownership between manufacture, distribution, retail, some small exceptions, but that's generally the rule we're going to be operating under. The sort of craft exception type thing? There is a craft exception. So the craft will allow you, you know, if you're in, let's say, upstate New York and you want to 
you know, run a small cannabis business where you grow it in the back and, you know, have a bed and breakfast and, uh, you know, sell it on site, you can have that. Those are the craft licenses. So they allow you some degree of vertical integration, but everyone else, you have to choose upfront whether you want to be in the retail space if whether you want to be a cultivator or a distributor. And let me ask you this, so I'm just curious because you said you had 10 prior to this year, 10 registered organizations, which, yes. you know, for our listeners in Canada would be equivalent to a licensed producer. Yes. Um, you know, with only 10, what was patient access like then and how may that change now? So patient access was limited. If at least you looked at the number of actual registered patients, it's uh, it was north of 100,000. You know, it was approaching 200, but it's it's a state with millions and millions of people. So access was pretty poor. I can't tell you if that was because it was hard to get a license, or because it's really hard to, or because it's really easy to get recreational cannabis even at least illicitly in New York. I'm not here to provide my opinion on that. I think that depends on whether you're upstate or downstate. Fair, fair enough. But the expectation would be that with more registered organizations, it will be easier to access, you know, medical cannabis and on the legal side, easier to access certainly adult use cannabis. Yes, I, they might issue more medical licenses. Again, because they're vertically integrated, they're actually quite expensive and expensive to operate. So I don't know how much competition there's going to be for that and, and whether they're really going to really introduce a lot more of those. I think that patients will be able to access the recreational market and the recreational market is where we're going to probably see the most growth. Gotcha. No, that makes sense. And so just to clarify for me, just to make sure that I understand, the, the law is passed and in force as of, I think, April, correct? Uh, the law is passed and is in force. Uh, portions of it are in force. So the decriminalization, uh, the the consumer-related provisions that are in force, but outside of those registered organizations uh, that you can only buy medically, right now there's no legal way for anyone who's 21 plus to actually buy it uh, for recreational purposes because no licenses have been issued yet. And that's because the Office of uh, Cannabis Management that's going to issue those licenses has not been formed yet. Under the law, the governor gets to appoint three commissioners to the board then each chamber of the legislature gets to a point one to for a total of five, and they will sit at the top. That hasn't happened yet. And then once the infrastructure is built out, then they're going to issue rules, both implementing the legislation and actually start issuing the licenses. I don't personally expect that to happen until uh, late 2021, early 2022. The appointment of the board or the license issuance? The license issuance. Uh, and that, that will also more or less align with the deadline for municipalities to opt out of having the dispensaries and the on-site consumption spaces in their jurisdiction. So there is a local opt-out provision, although then they lose out on the taxes. Okay. So if we're talking, you know, realistic timelines, you're you're saying there's going to be a board in place at some point in the next couple of months, then they have to obviously get together and, you know, prepare the necessary regime to issue licenses. And that's end of this year, early next. When are we going to see in New York, not just New York City, obviously, but in communities in New York, places where adult use cannabis or even medical cannabis can be purchased at brick and mortar? So I, I do think that the registered organizations, which uh, are grandfathered in and are allowed to apply for retail distribution, are probably going to move ahead of, of the broader market. You'll probably see some adult use there. 
but I'm, I think by this time next year, you should start seeing, you know, retail cannabis, you know, hitting, hitting, hitting the street near you. So I would say probably about 12 months. No. Okay. That, that, that will account also for the cultivation period, right? Because we're going to be coming out of some winter months. And let me ask you this, do you expect a lot of opting out? And we saw that here in Canada, I, a bit. You know, I, I certainly wouldn't say it's the majority of, of municipalities uh, that opted out. We did see some. And it's interesting because we see some that are sandwiched between two giants that didn't opt out. So you don't really stop a whole bunch um, other than just have people spend, I guess, a little bit more gas than they would otherwise to get to where they want to go. Obviously, you don't have a crystal ball, Alex, but do you expect a lot of opt out? Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? I expect opt-outs in certain counties and, and certain towns, you know, Suffolk County, parts of Long Island, I would expect there will be opt-outs. Uh, also, some of the northern counties might have some opt-outs in more conservative areas. New York, while it's considered a sort of a liberal state, has pretty deep pockets of people who oppose legalization, a lot of nimbyism, you know, not in my backyard, uh, you know. While, while the residents might be happy to uh, have access, they don't necessarily want a dispensary in the downtown area. And how about the, you know, because obviously you're, you're not going to put a cultivation site in, uh, you know, Chelsea. Where are those going and are there rules around where you can cultivate? Like, are, is the opt-out just for retail or is the opt-out also for cultivation? Opt-out is purely for retail, so that will be up to the state where they're going to. Now, that's not to say there's not going to be significant input from the localities. I would find it very hard to believe that the state is going to issue licenses to cultivate in a town that just doesn't want to do that. In addition to the opt-out provisions for the retail, there are preserved powers for zoning generally. Now, it's it, the law is written in such a way that towns cannot completely zone away things that are allowed, right? So they can't basically, you know, make cannabis 500 square foot uh, area only only available for cannabis. But if you know anything about local control and local zoning, that is a big headache. So unless you have town buy-in and, you know, town buy-in is still going to be part of the application process, it'll be a little harder to, to do that. Um, I think uh, the same areas that now allow uh, you know, hemp cultivation for, you know, CBD and everything else, probably going to be the same areas where you're going to see cultivation. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if some of the people who are growing hemp today are going to be growing cannabis a year from now. So sort of following on that potential opt out and, and because we've seen it, like, for example, here in, in Ontario, where, where, where I live, retail brick and mortar had, again, opt out and you did have a lot of players uh, involved and, and still it's still growing. But there's also a online model. You know, we, we are in 2021, and by that, that will be in 2022. The, the, the order from your desk and, and whatnot exists. What's the you know, plan, or is that available uh, in, in New York potentially, or is that just a non starter? Where, where are we at with cannabis delivery systems potentially? Here in Ontario, it's the province that can do it. The brick and mortar retailers were allowed just because of the pandemic and it, they are allowed to for a bit and then it's pulled away and responding to frictions. What What is the online model, if any, uh, going to be permitted in New York? So it remains to be seen what the rules actually say about the modes of how you can allow delivery. I, I would think that there will be some online component or some app component. Uh, that being said, uh, delivery licenses, both ones that are attached to the dispensary 
and standalone delivery licenses for a limited number of employees are actually one of the licenses you can apply for. So New York does envision delivery uh, as opposed to you having to go there. You know, they're going to have to implement the same sort of verification, make sure that the person is over 21, but that is something that's contemplated, which is a big change from prior laws. It's sort of the same way with the with COVID, we did get a pilot of the delivery model from our uh, registered organizations. You know, let me let me just begin the final question, which I always like to ask in these um, interviews and series and discussions. We know that there's a framework and we know that that framework is going to be fleshed out um, over the next year or so. But what can we anticipate? Is it going to, you know, I guess I won't put words in your mouth, but, but what can we anticipate over the next year? And you've alluded to some things, but uh, for, for those outside looking in, what do you think we can expect in New York over the next year and maybe in the first year or so of, of full-scale legalization? Well, I think uh, we're going to see if New York is able to make social equity work in a way that no other state has been able to do so far. We've expressed a preference for at least 50% of the licenses, although it's probably going to be, majority will be retail licenses, to go to uh, socially disadvantaged, so minorities, women, disabled veterans, and distressed farmers to get some of these licenses. The problem I've alluded to before, and maybe in the, even a prior recording, is it's still a very capital-intensive undertaking. Access to banking is still constrained. Access to lending, you know, money is expensive for this. And, you know, there's enough headwinds with the inability to sort of take your standard tax deductions and, you know, have the regular protections like bankruptcy. We're going to see if, uh, how many of those can actually survive and what the legislature does to actually help them. You know, uh, there's going to be some components of that from the fees they're going to collect. So there's going to be uh, registered organizations are going to have to pony up to pay uh, pretty hefty fees if they want to get into the real uh, into the uh, recreational game uh, as as vertically integrated organizations. But you know, we'll see how much that helps the actual social equity applicants to actually run these businesses. We're going to see a lot of jockeying of, by people trying to understand which licenses they're going to snipe. You know, there's a limited number of licenses for retail. You're limited to three. Obviously, that means you have to really pick your pick your spots. It's an experiment in making this decentralized, but because of the capital costs, it remains to be seen in a couple of years whether that's actually successful or they're going to have to revise it in much the way, same way that you know Colorado did uh, years ago. Could we see, and in, in, you know, be, because of the issue that you pointed out, that practical gap in the legislation? you know, the intensive nature, capital intensive nature of, of starting something like this. Does, from your reading, and, and I know that rules will come, could there be some creative partnerships established where the goals are met, but maybe money comes to more established players already, or is that may not go? Because we have seen people get creative with the rules, and as long as you're not offside necessarily, then, then you should be able to find a way to meet the goal. So I'm wondering if on your reading, is there some room there to, to meet the goals with, through some partnerships or some creative lawyering, let's call it, that, that will get it to, to where folks need to go and meet the, the goals of the legislation? I think that there is enough in there that if you truly want to finance and take an economic stake, but not a controlling stake, there's some opportunities there. It becomes uh, much more difficult if you're really trying to employ the same model that was employed in some other states by multi-state operators who would partner up with a 
a diversity applicant, just put them on the application and, you know, get the license and then sort of uh, shove them out of the way. That's, um, that's not what they're going for. Uh, there's both a component uh, on the front end where you will have to certify that the person who you're putting forward as the uh, economic equity applicant is actually going to have a managerial role. They're going to have to have 51, 51% ownership stake. So obviously that allows you a lot of room with the 49%, but there's there's going to you have to see uh, what the limitations are on, on doing multiple of those and also how you keep it sort of profitable. Well, lots to, to wait and see for, Alex. I think ah, yeah. uh, we've had uh, two episodes, so I think we'll be scheduling the next one for before end of year to see where things are because I am interested Great. in what, what the board uh, that's going to be um, created relatively shortly is going to say. That's going to be quite interesting. And uh, as always, we'll keep in touch, my friend. Stay tuned. How are we going? <laughs> Thanks, Alex. We'd like to thank Alex for his contribution to this series and his expertise. Alex, thank you very much. Alex is a partner at Carter Ledyard in Melbourne in New York City. For more about Alex and the firm, please visit clm.com. I am Mario Torres from Brazo Seller Law in Ottawa, Canada. Thank you very much. On behalf of Meritas, thank you for listening. Find this week's show notes and a variety of other free resources on the News and Insights section of the Meritas website, www.meritas.org. Be sure to join us next week to learn more about cannabis regulations around the globe. Thank you again for listening and have a wonderful day.